Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hello and welcome to Attacking Third, a CBS Sports Soccer Podcast. I'm Sandra Herrera, lead NWSL writer for CBS Sports. Joined today, as always, by my colleague and co-host Lisa Roman, NWSL analyst and broadcaster for CBS Sports. On today's episode, we have a special interview ahead of the 2023 NWSL season. Be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube so that you never miss out when we go live or our exclusive interviews. Today, we welcome former professional goalkeeper in NWSL, former assistant coach, of Afghanistan women's national team and the new vice president of soccer operations and GM of Orlando pride, Haley Carter. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sandra. Well, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, I, I listen, we were chatting a little bit off mic and we were saying um, how excited we were, uh, we were to have you on the show just because you know, we've we chatted with a lot of folks. We don't we and executives aren't ones that we get into often. So we're always excited whenever we get the opportunity um, to to chat with uh, good people just like yourself. It's a newly formed and elevated role as VP and GM in the executive leadership role in the Orlando Pride office. So let's start with that. Talk about this new role for you. Um, what's it going to be like for you sort of overseeing all these different elements of uh, all things Orlando Pride soccer? Yeah, so it's really, truly the intersection of of business and soccer, right? Which is one of the reasons I was so attracted to it, among many reasons, which we can we can talk about as we move through this. But it is the traditional sense, what you would expect of a GM, right? Managing player transactions, being a liaison with the league, uh, liaising with the players' association is necessary, and and navigating salary cap and all of those really sexy things, right? The things that you would anticipate a general manager would be doing. But it also is navigating a higher level business conversations and ensuring that we are building a narrative and sharing that narrative and and really telling the story of what's happening with the club, with our major partners and sponsors and the community and making sure that we're really engaged and involved. That's that's one of the club's biggest priorities right now is is ensuring that we're engaged in serving the community as much as possible. So navigating both the business side of things, managing the budget and and bringing together our, our marketing team and you know incredible folks like Jackie Maynard with with the athletes, with the staff and and overseeing not just the soccer side of it, right? But the operational side of it as well and ensuring that players are being supported the way that they need staff are being supported the way that they need to be supported and not just technical staff, but our medical staff, support staff, et cetera, managing the logistics side, the security side, facilities, all of that, all of that good stuff. That is such a hefty list of your job description. And it is such a big job that comes with a big list, but it's your first day essentially on the job. And and besides, you know, setting up the office, getting some more purple gear. I mean, what are going to be your first steps in this new role? 
So a couple of things, my, my goals, I guess, for the first 90 days really is about relationships. It's about building relationships with the players, with the staff, with the community, with the league. And, you know, that, that's my personal priority for a club, for the club, right. For the team, for the staff, our biggest priorities are really setting that tone. You know, now as we've, we've entered preseason, setting the tone with the culture that we're trying to build, the identity that we're trying to build, the values and the focus on details and being hardworking athletes, working harder than anybody else. And, and like I said, really paying attention to those details and, and really putting in the work and uh, you know, we're, we're not just here to create and, and I will preach on this and you guys have seen things that I've put out in the past. I'm very serious about creating a safe and inclusive environment for athletes and for staff. Everybody needs to feel safe coming to work to do the job that they've been hired to do. But it's more than that. In Orlando, we are creating an environment where people are going to love getting up and coming to work every single day. It doesn't matter if you're the kit person, if you're the groundskeeper, if you're a starting player who's playing, you know, 90 minutes every game. It doesn't matter who you are. You're going to enjoy getting up and coming to work every day. You're going to be excited to get there, excited to take part. And the other piece, too, is this belief. There's been a lot of churn in, in Orlando's history, whether it's been ownership churn, front office churn, head coaching churn. So creating a sense of consistency, but also the sense of belief and confidence. There is zero reason why Orlando cannot win the NWSL championship this year. And on day one, in our team meeting, we're talking about that. You know, we've talked about that every player Every staff member, regardless of role, is going to have the belief that we're going to win the NWSL championship. It's that simple. And recognizing it's a long lead, it's a long season, it's a long, it's a marathon. And there's going to be incremental goals in that space. But every single player, every person that walks through the doors at our training facility at Exploria has the belief that we can win the NWSL championship. And that, that, that will always be our goal. So not only are we creating an inclusive and safe environment, but we are focused on winning. That's what we want to do. That's what we're. I, that's why I was hired. That's why we've made some of the other hires that we've made recently. Is it's time to be consistent. It's time to build a legacy, and it's time to win championships and bring them home to Orlando. Energy. I, I have to imagine that if if there are Orlando Pride fans uh, listening to this right now, they're uh, quite possibly like also equally motivated by just you know hearing some of the things you just said. And it's important to sort of have I think that that vision and perspective. Uh, I'm in agreement with you. We've had to cover Orlando Pride on E3, whether it's been uh, talking about games or analyzing them, and it just sort of yeah. has felt like at times in the past it's like oh it's like the team kind of is in this. Um, sort of cycle of hitting a reset button a little bit. And it, yeah. it's cool to sort of hear you talk about that, especially with your background um, as a former player yourself, you know, like familiar with your goalkeeping days in NWSL with Houston Dash specifically. And and now you're back in the league, but now in this um, administrative role. And it's it's a very uh, unique sort of uh, transitional time, I think, for, for the league where we're starting to see more of that in terms of uh, former players are finding themselves in these new roles, whether they're at the coaching levels or technical staffs or, or you're in your case in a more executive role. So for, for you, like what parts of, of your experiences as a former player in this league do you think you may use to continue, uh, you know, growth within the league and, and growth for Orlando Pride? It's all about perspective. So, you know, the days I was playing in the good old days when the league minimum was $8,500, and we relied on unpaid amateurs to get through the season and we had 20 player rosters 
And I can tell you that I personally in my house over three seasons hosted nine different teammates. Uh, And so I I get that life. I remember that life very well. I worked a full-time job the whole time that I was playing. And, you know, so I, I really, that the plight of the player is something that I am intimately aware of and familiar with. Obviously, we've progressed and and really evolved in incredibly positive ways since then. Uh, but I think we can all admit that as as we've seen over the last 18 months, there's still quite a ways to go in terms of uh, how people are treated, not just players, but everyone within the league, um, staff as well. So I think the the biggest thing for me as a former player, and and let me just say this too, it is a very difficult transition to go from playing to coaching or to go from playing to working in an executive role. I was very fortunate because for a couple of reasons, I had I was already coaching when I was playing. So my last season playing professionally, I was already working with the Afghan women's national team. Uh, and then when I retired, I really stepped away from the game and the league. I stepped away from the league for close to two years. And and when I say step away, I mean, I was not obsessively watching games and keeping up with things. And uh, and I'll tell you, I, I I I lost friends over it because I just wasn't I wasn't as engaged as um, they probably would have liked to be. And and like when I came on with the dash and I was helping them do some, you know, preparing their draft board in 2019 and and I would get calls from former teammates being like, what's going on with this? And I'm like, yeah, I'm not telling you that. That's confidential. That's technical staff stuff. And uh, and it's a it's a it is a hard transition to make. So I think to your point earlier about how we're seeing more players start to make that transition. I think we should recognize that it's a big jump um, in, ter- in terms of changing your mindset and how you approach the game, how you manage relationships with players, with friends, with former teammates. Uh, you know, navigating that, I think is not for everyone. So for the folks who are making that transition, I, you know, I think it's something that that fans and everyone really should be aware of. It's not an easy transition. Um, but for me, I think that I was really fortunate that I was able to make that transition. And, and but I haven't lost where I came from. And I haven't lost sight of, of my roots as a player and the struggles of being a player in this league in the early days. And so for me, when you're in this position, when you're in professional sports, whether it's it's a position of this level or any any position that's interacting with with athletes, we're in the people business. Our capital assets are human beings. And we have a responsibility to treat everyone with dignity and with respect and with professionalism. And so my experience as a player, that's my biggest takeaway is, you know, the problem isn't trading players. This is professional sports. We are in the entertainment industry. That That's how it goes. Uh, it's still a business. We have to win championships. The problem isn't trading players. The problem is how you communicate with players, how you make players feel when you have those hard conversations. Do they feel like you thought about everything going on in their personal life? You thought about what their personal and professional goals are on and off the pitch. And and when you've made a, dis- a decision, a business decision that may, they may disagree with, that you've really thought through that and you, you know, let's say that you have an athlete who needs a little bit more time than the time off that's required in the CBA between trades, for instance, that you're giving them that additional time off. You're not just sticking to what the CBA minimum requirement is, but that you're actually 
going out of your way to ensure that this player is transitioning and in a better place. And, and I've been asked sort of what my, my leadership philosophy is, and, and I could go into that. But what I will tell you about um, my priority for athletes and for staff, and this is, is true really of anybody, anyone that comes to Orlando is at some point going to leave Orlando. So if you're a professional athlete, at some point you're going to leave, whether you're traded, you're waived, you're retired. At some point, your time in Orlando is going to come to an end. And my goal is that every individual that comes to Orlando leaves Orlando feeling good about their time at the club. And the second part is that they leave Orlando in a better place than when they got there, personally and professionally, that they have developed on the pitch, they have developed in their personal life. And the other thing, too, is the, most of us are going to spend many more years of our lives not being professional athletes than we are going to spend them being professional athletes. So ensuring that we're really investing in athletes and in our staff and everyone, both as people and as players or as people and as coaches, not just, you know, are you producing on the pitch? Are we getting results on the pitch? But really making them feel like we care because I do. I care. I care about what, how, how they feel they see success and what success looks like for them, both personally and professionally. I genuinely care about that authentically. And so, and I have to believe that when you make that kind of investment in people, when you make that kind of investment in your culture, results are going to come. I have to believe that. There has been so much growth from uh, in this league, right? From the time you played till now, as you alluded to, but there's also been a lot of uh, hardships, right? Over the last two years, the league has gone through a lot in terms of investigations into misconduct by coaches, staff, executives. And now we're seeing corrective action steps being taken in the league to prevent more misconduct as this league evolves and as it grows. Uh, I want your perspective on the last two years as someone who is a former player and, and now being in this executive role on all of these ongoing former and current investigations. Yeah, it's been a rough two years. You know, I think for anybody involved in the league and the history of the league, you know, whether you've been a staff member, whether you've been an athlete, I think it's been, it's been a long time coming. Uh, I think the issues we've navigated over the last two years have permeated the U.S. soccer landscape for a very long time, generations. Uh, and fixing it and adjusting it is not going to happen overnight. I think we're going to continue to to sort of slog our way through this a little bit. Um, but I am very confident with the league's current leadership, the hires that they're making, the hires that we're seeing across the league that change real, genuine, sustainable change is afoot. Um, for me personally, the last two years, I, I think I think every player who's played in the league sort of looks back at their experience and and moments where you think, man, could I have done something different? Could I have responded to that differently? Was there something else going on there that I was missing? or should I should I have seen that happening? And I think there's, not necessarily survivor's guilt, if you will, but this sense of, was I doing enough? You know, was I doing enough for my teammates? And and it's something I think I've struggled with personally. And it's it's very interesting to me. 
also because of my experience working with the Afghan women's national team. When we were navigating with Afghanistan, the, the sexual assault claims and investigations with them, the speed at which players who are really our starters for Afghanistan that were in Europe, North America, Australia, really came from the diaspora, if you will, the speed at which they they jumped to sacrifice their own international careers to ensure that women inside Kabul and inside Afghanistan, women that many of them had never even met, that their voices were being heard and that their claims were taken seriously. Uh, and when that happened and back in you know 2018, I had never seen anything like it to that point. I had never seen anything like it among American athletes. You know, athletes in the league are by far type A personalities. You don't get to playing at the highest level without being a type A personality. And you also don't get to playing at the highest level without having sort of this myopic like sense of purpose and really focusing on like, what do I need to do to be successful? And so that's that's why you always hear coaches and clubs talking about the concept of team, right? Because we're we're taking a bunch of individuals who are driven to be as successful as they can be individually and bring them together as a team. Um, but that really stood out to me in the moment that seeing these women without even thinking twice, knowing they would never be able to put on a uniform for Afghanistan ever again, to jump, to to speak out, to protect those women and to make sure that those women had a voice was game changing. And, and I have to say that I think that if the players and the women of Afghanistan had not taken the stand when they did in 2018, what we're seeing in the NWSL would have never happened. It would have never happened. The Afghanistan women's national team fundamentally changed how FIFA and other governing bodies deal with sexual assault, sexual misconduct, sexual harassment in the game. They forced the issue to the point where, you know, three years later, then we start to see it, it happening in, in other places. You know, it was Afghanistan, then you saw it in Haiti, then you started seeing it in South American countries. Now, now we've seen it in NWSL. And the thing is that it was always there. It's always there. This has been in every sport at every level. And so to see them make that happen, and it, it, it just cascaded to the point where now where we have athletes in the NWSL who are, are standing up for each other. And the perfect example is how quickly Alex Morgan came to defend Mata Shem um, and to stand up for them and, and, and their journey, Sinead and, and Mata. So, and that, you know, three or four years ago, I don't think that happens. Um, so I'm, I'm confident that players taking ownership, you know, because we've all felt it, like I said, we've all felt it over the last two years. So players taking ownership and looking out for teammates and ensuring that um, standards are, are raised and are maintained and, and folks are held accountable for anything that is, is below bar is, is critical. But again, I also think that we're seeing these hires across the league at various clubs at the league itself that, you know, I'm confident that everyone's going to be in a place of holding everyone else accountable and, and I and it kind of has a negative tone to it, right? Like holding everyone accountable, but it's that the concept of the rising tide, right? As mm -hmm. as our as our talent and hires gets better, as our 
how we approach things, how we, as our transparency increases, everyone is going to get better. And ultimately that's what we want. We want the NWSL to be the, the premier most attractive league for the best women's footballers in the world. That's the goal. You know, it's really, it's very moving uh, sort of hear you give your perspective on, on the last 18 months uh, in the league and everything that has sort of transpired or surface, let's just say, um, you know, and, and to sort of hear you talk about um, other executives and their roles and how they've had to sort of continue to navigate this. Because Commissioner Berman has has spoken a few times in, yeah. in media settings about, um, you know, the NWSL ecosystem at large. Right. And this three pronged yeah. approach that we keep you know hearing about and how the first step was essentially allowing the investigations to do their due diligence, to, to seek out the truth. And then ultimately this step two and this step three that we're kind of in at the moment with with the corrective actions that follow and that hopefully lead to what is ultimately um, larger change within the league for systemic reform. Um, and it sort of just feels like even just hearing you talk about like it just sort of feels like currently there just happened to be more resources available finally to, to players, yeah. whereas before there were not, whether that's something like a collective bargaining agreement, um, you know, a, a fully recognized players union, uh, anti-harassment policies, things like that. So it just sort of feels like there's there's an opportunity here for even more change uh, for the league and moving forward. So I guess like for that sort of go into to the hopefulness of it all, I guess, what's what's something that you're really looking forward to in this next era of NWSL? I'm really looking forward to continued investment, right? I, I think one of the reasons I was so attracted to Orlando is because of the the personal commitment and investment of the Wilf family. And, you know, in conversations with Mark Wilf, it is abundantly clear that this, the women's side in Orlando is not an afterthought. And I've sat in meetings with him, multiple meetings with him. He is personally involved. He is personally committed, asking questions, doing diligence, you know, and seeing that level of focus and they're generational owners. You look at the Minnesota Vikings and they've owned the Minnesota Vikings for nearly two decades. This Orlando is not, they, they don't buy assets and then flip them or move them. That's not the intent. They are genuinely trying to make Orlando the best professional club in the world. And that means making giving the pride its own brand and its own identity and making the same investments on the women's side that you see on the men's side and i think that that's just one sort of micro example of what we're seeing across the u.s sports and really globally the women's sports landscape right investing in women's sports the roi is there and sponsors are seeing it television producers providers are seeing it and the data doesn't lie right and the more investment we can drive across women's sports landscapes, I think the more resources that we're going to see. And, and it's just taken time. If you had told me in my third season with the Houston Dash in 2016 that there would still be an NWSL in 2023, I don't know that I would have believed you. Truthfully, I don't know that I would have. Um, so I think it's a testament to every single person who's played a role in this league, every owner who's participated in this league. Um, you know, I, I think I think a a quick moment on owners. We are moving along, and we're moving away from owners who have been detrimental to this league, and it is a very positive thing. So I want to make that very clear. the The decisions that are being made to move from ownership in the past, and you guys know who I'm talking about. Those are positive decisions, and and 
And I'm, I cannot be more appreciative for where the league has fallen on that. But we also have to recognize that there was a foundation that was built by previous owners, um, you know, across the league that without the work and without, without the ownership, without front office staff, without technical staff, without athletes slogging day in and day out, without Megan Burke and the NWSLPA and without Amanda Duffy and her time and without Jessica Berman and her time. And every single person has sort of played a role in this ecosystem, some positive, some negative, but the league would not be where it's at today had each person along the way not contributed to where it's at. And, and I think that that that's a, a critical sort of reflection point for us that we need to recognize is that I, I would have never imagined it. I would have never imagined that there would still be a league, you know, 11 seasons on. And so for us to be where we're at, I think that we should be ecstatic to have made it this far, but also chomping at the bit to take it to where we know that it can go because now we've proven it. Now we've proven that there can be a league and it can be sustainable. And so to your point, Sandra, now is the time that we continue to drive investment. We continue to gener- to demonstrate build again, build and sell that narrative that the return on investment is there for women's soccer. And, and we just continue to drive that. So Consider- I'm, I'm hopeful. Yeah. I, I mean, and considering, I, I appreciate you sharing that, like in 2016, when you were playing, you didn't think that the league would still be around in its 11th year, um, the longevity of it. And I don't think you thought you would be a GM of a team in the NWSL, but you have a ton of experience, a ton of success in this sport that you've touched on numerous times throughout this conversation. And it's clearly all of your experience as a coach collegiately, internationally, uh, as a scouter, as a recruiter has helped you evolve into the type of person and the type of administrator you are and plan to be for Orlando. But what led you to join the administrative side of the game as your next step in your career? Yeah. So it's interesting. If you, if you look at my, uh, if you look at my resume over the last 17 years, I've sort of led these two independent lives. Uh, There was a soccer life and there was a professional corporate life. And, and one really sort of funded the other. (laughs) Um, But, you know, every decision, every personal and professional decision that I've made over the last 17 years, I think really has brought me to this moment. And I, and having the conversations with the Wolf family and watching what has happened in the league over the last 18 months um, I decided really it was time to get off the sidelines. You know, I, I have an MBA. I went to law school, licensed to practice law in two states. Uh, you know, I can I can negotiate contracts. I can I've I've built this wealth of experience in the business world, while also simultaneously building this wealth of experience in the the football world. And it's time to to bring those passions and professions into one position. And, and to really go after it because uh, I've, I've been very outspoken about opportunities for improvement within the game, whether it's within the league, whether it's at the international level and, and navigating conversations with FIFA. And, uh, and it's time to be a part of the solution. Uh, I think for years, you know, I just, 
I have a voice and a platform and I've managed to use it. But for me to be able to really effectuate change, I need to be in it. And every, like I said, every personal and professional decision, my decision to go to law school uh, was driven by my desire to give back to the to the soccer community. So whether it was advocating for players, advocating for coaches, helping navigate employment agreements and that sort of stuff. Uh, every decision that I've made has led me to this place. And, and I just reached a point where I was like, I, we need good people in this league. And I, I have to believe I'm one of them. Uh, you know, I, not to toot my own horn here, but I've got to believe that in my, with my experience, the things I care about, my personal values that I can't just complain about the league and not be willing to take part in, in making it a better place. And so when this opportunity became available with the Will family and Orlando and Bloom Sports reached out to me about interviewing for the position. Immediately, I jumped at it. And I could not be more thankful and grateful to the Will family for taking a chance on me because, you know, I think you could say I'm an untraditional hire because I spent the, you know, I was a logistics officer in the Marine Corps for eight years. And then I had various procurement roles. I'm really good at buying things, you guys. I think it's a very good deal. (laughs) But but I have still lived this this life and and developed things on the soccer side. And so for me, have you guys ever heard of the the Japanese term ikigai? You guys ever heard no, of that? I haven't. So so ikigai is is the purpose of life, and it's when what you're passionate about and what you're good at and what the world needs and what you can get paid for all come together. And this is my icky guy. This is what I'm passionate about. This is what I'm good at. The world needs it. And Orlando can pay me for it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Orlando's Orlando's a team that's um, taking its first steps into their preseason right now. And and, and yeah. they're a club that uh, they, they've had a, an active offseason, um, yeah. whether it was, you know, the official promotion of Sapines to head coach, uh, big, uh, big free agency resigning in, in Marta and her return to the club. Lots of players from from last year's yeah. uh, uh, roster sort of making resignings with the club. Um, so, in these early days of of preseason, um, how, how is something like uh, how are you approaching something like player evaluation, right? Because that's something else that kind of comes within the role of, of GM, yeah. sort of having to evaluate player performances and, and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, I've got a really great partnership with Seb uh, and the staff that he's brought on board. So I will tell you that everything that we do is very collaborative. I'm a big believer in disagreement. I encourage it uh, and and welcome it. And so long as it's respectful. (laughs) Uh, But we have a very collaborative, very uh, sort of open environment that's very much based on a growth mindset in everything that we do. So as far as player evaluations are concerned, it's something that we approach collectively. And, you know, Seb being a a, a relatively younger coach and, and, you know, he's got five, six years of experience now, but ensuring that he is supported and doing his evaluations and what he believes is happening with players' performance. And then, of course, you know, I have access to the same platforms that he has access to. And I, my big thing is being present. I very much believe in being present. So I'm at Sylvan as long as the team is at Sylvan. I'm, you know, if I can get out to training, I'm going to be out to training. Uh, you know, so 
really how we kind of do it is he evaluates with his staff and I evaluate and we really sort of come together and have conversations and, and really, you know, ultimately decisions are resting with me, but it's very much a, a collaborative dialogue discussion on, on what we see long-term, short-term, where we want to make investments, how we want to focus on development one thing that is really big for us is not just player evaluations because anybody can evaluate a player. Anyone. Anyone can look at a player and be like, oh, this player is not good at this. It's not, they're not good at this, but they are good at this and they are good at that. Uh, anybody can do that. Um, but figuring out now, based on what you've seen and evaluating a player, what a player needs to work on, what skill set we want to maintain, but where we need to grow. Uh tactically, technically, physically, what that looks like. That's where the real challenge is. And that's really where we're putting a lot of our focus. And so now that we've started preseason, one of our main priorities is ensuring that every single player has a very comprehensive individual development plan. And, and again, this kind of goes back to that investment piece, right? Like we want players to know that we care about their development. And so putting together a process, it's, it's very formal, very codified, and but simple for players to to understand and participate in the process of developing that and what that individual development plan looks like so they know that we're not just we're not just evaluating you we're evaluating you and then we're going to together develop a path for you to get where it is that you need to be both for the club and for the team and for the league and for yourself personally um so that's sort of how we're approaching it i would just say you know everything is is collaborative it is very much we, not I. Drives me nuts when general managers use the word I. It kills me. Um, I recognize again, decisions rest with me, but we very much are, are a we organization with technical medical support staff. We operate in we, not in I or me. So <laughs> I love that. Hey, Haley, this has been a, a fantastic conversation with you so far. So thank you so much for, for giving us the time today. But, you know, whenever we try to close out these interviews, we always try to do it with um, maybe some some fun questions to close things out. You, you mentioned already sort of having that collaborative um, uh, sort of relationship and, and conversations with your head coach and, and Seb Hines. So I, I got to ask, like, he's he's kind of an Orlando pro at this point in terms of the city. Has he given you any pro tips on on getting integrated into or Orlando as a city? His advice was get a place that's as close to the training facility as possible. <laughs> That's and I agree bit. with him. I agree with him. I, yeah. I talked to uh, I talked to Haley McCutcheon today a little bit about, you know, because I'm I've just have arrived and I'm trying to figure out where I'm gonna live. And I was talking to Haley about it and she was asking me where I was thinking about living. And I said, I'm looking at places as close to the training facility as possible. But the Fair. way she raised the question was she was like, So where in the city? I'm like, girl, <laughs> I'm almost 40 years old with the child and I care about school districts and how am I from the grocery store and like is Publix is it like a really nice Publix like I was just like no I, I want a commute that is no more than seven minutes and I want to be able to ride my bike to Publix so I'm going to be as close to Sylvan as possible while you and the players can be as you know down in the city living your best life uh, I love that. I love that for you. That's a great, yeah. I think that's a great uh, response for, for folks who aren't um, catching this interview uh, with you uh, on YouTube, perhaps just consuming it as a podcast through the earphones. They are missing out on the excellent 
purple accents that you have oh, yeah. right now. You've got purple eyeglass frames. We saw the purple nails. How much How much more purple are you reincorporating into your wardrobe? So, so I was telling Kay Rollins, she's the president of the Orlando City Foundation, that I, I did not own anything purple. And uh, I have gone from owning nothing purple to having purple uh, specs, eyeglasses, and purple nail polish. And... Uh, and I think I've got a necklace that has some purple accents in it, but I'm accessorizing. Okay. I've got it, which is not something I do very often, by the way, you guys, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm not really an accessorizer, but um, I do love fun glasses. I, I have glasses in every color. I did not have them in purple though, but now I have them in purple. And so, but Kay was telling me now that I, now that I'm in Orlando, anytime I go shopping, purple is going to like scream out at me and I'm going to want to buy it because you never know when I might wear it. Uh, we'll see about that. but. But yes, yeah, so I have gone from owning literally nothing purple, lots of orange. I still have plenty of orange, but now I'm now I got to build up my got to build up my wardrobe. All right, okay. it's, it's a perfect excuse to go shopping, right? Just buy that, all the purple that things. That is the truth. That is the truth. I didn't really need an excuse. Um, <laughs> my bank account, especially, did not need an excuse. But um, but certainly, it's it's fun, and I like I said, I can't wait. I. I can't wait for us to get through preseason and into the season. It's going to be a really good year. And I am so excited about the future of this club and the team. And we're going to do great things. We're excited to see you get more and more purple too, as the year goes on. It'll be a progression. You guys (laughs) talk to me, talk to me in November. I'm going to say we have to follow up and and, and check in on uh, the, the, the color yeah. coordination of the closet and how much is purple versus versus everything else. But uh, I, I love that. Good energy. Let's let's end there. Thank you so much, Haley, for joining us today. Thanks to everybody who has been listening along to Attacking Third. Download, follow, listen to us anywhere you get your podcast. You can watch us too. Please subscribe to youtube.com slash Attacking Third to get alerts for whenever we go live and our exclusive interviews. For Sandra Herrera, Lisa Roman, and Haley Carter, this was Attacking Third. Thank you.